Please turn to 2 Samuel. I'll be reading chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days, David, are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. In our journey, these 23, 24 weeks, through the history of redemption, the history of the Bible, we have seen some big, massive signposts called covenants so far. We have seen the covenant God made with Noah after the flood. He will never again destroy all mankind with water. We call it the Noahic covenant. We saw the covenant God made with this one man, Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. We saw the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. We call it the Mosaic covenant. And today, here's our sermon. This covenant God made with this man, this king, David, we call it the Davidic covenant. Let's pray again. Father, may the Davidic covenant, it's unfolding through human history and its fulfillment being experienced even today flow in the bloodstream of everyone here. May you wow us by your glorious, eternal plan of redemption. May the greater Son of David be treasured as such all the more. Help me as a teacher communicate accurately that which you have placed in Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen. We have seen that God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt 40 years through the wilderness finally over the Jordan River into the promised land and conquering most of it. Then that first generation, Dave, I mean Joshua and Caleb, they died out. And then for the next 300 years we saw, which is covered in the book of Judges, God would bring up dredges after Israel again and again and again, would go through the roller coaster ride of rebellion and worshiping false gods. Then we saw last week, finally, the monarchy was established in Israel. King Saul became the first king of Israel in 1051 B.C. Forty-two years later, David became the second king in Israel. And David is, how do you say it? He, he is a very complex character. 
he ended up being the greatest king that Israel ever had. But David was a man who never did anything half-heartedly. He threw himself and his passion, whether it's love for a woman or love for God or battling with swords and spears, whether it was from his conviction, do not touch the Lord's anointed even though he's wicked, He was convinced about what he was convinced of and he went for it wholeheartedly. And what we get out of that are mind-boggling, glorious successes. And we get atrocious, sinful acts. But what comes through with David and God means for it Why is He so special to so many of us believers? If He's not, He ought to become. It was because He was born again. Let me say it the way that the texts say that same thing throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. It says it this way. David repented constantly. And his repentance was real. It was genuine. It was desperately sought after when he would come face to face with his sin. Now, David becoming a king in that story is, from a human standpoint, a huge surprise. Remember the first king Saul, after God told him, Conquer these people. Kill them all. Don't take any plunder. They pretty much, under Saul's leadership, did that. Except they decided to keep the king alive and bring him back in some really good cattle so that they could sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel confronted him when he showed up a couple days later and said, this is the last time I will see you because of your disobedience to God. God has rejected you. Samuel didn't understand it. Sacrificing to the Lord. This is where we get that statement. Obedience is better than any religiosity you have. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And disobedience to God's revealed will is like the sin of witchcraft. And so God sent Samuel to anoint the person who would be the next king. And so he sent him to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, who had seven sons. And Samuel said, bring your sons here. And the oldest, the first one, he sees named Eliab. Samuel thought, this has to be the one. Because he had every outward thing you would think a king would be. Tall, handsome, strong, But God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And finally, after six were rejected, where's the seventh? He's a teenager. He's out tending the sheep. Go get him. It's David. 
And David's life may be summed up the way the Bible sums it up. He was a man after God's own heart. From childhood, he had extraordinary gifts from God to play music, to write poetry, and as a warrior, a soldier, a general, a leader. Many of the Psalms, the poetry, and much of it put to music, we have in our Bible. And we love the 23rd Psalm, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd. You can see David. When he wrote it, don't know. Did he write it when he's hiding from Saul, ready to be getting killed? But the Lord's my shepherd. I'm not going to wander. Or for me, probably my favorite psalm from David, Psalm 51, after he sins so grievously. The thing about David, you don't merely get accurate doctrine. You get that, and it's important, like the doctrine of repentance. But through David's writing and poetry, you feel the way he felt. When he pleads, you just can't read something to one, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You hear him say, God, take not you from me because of my sin. You hear his heart cry out, you don't want me to take an animal and kill it. See, he knew God did say do that. He says, you want something that is behind that. A broken... that." I'm saying it the way i got to hear David say that in his tears. You want a broken and a contrite heart. That's David. And and he was the greatest king. If you look at your maps and the the size of the kingdom after Saul, and then by the time David was done, how it grew its borders. But this morning, that's not what we're talking about. Our sermon isn't about... David, really, though it is. But it's more about God. And it's more specifically about a covenant, a promise, a pact that God committed and bound Himself to through this king, David. It's found again in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read again, verse 12 through verse 17. God sends Nathan the prophet, and these are the words he speaks. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in a 
accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now this passage is like many prophetic passages we get in the Bible. That is, God gives Nathan this telescopic view down the road of history where some things might be coming to pass 40 years from then and others not for a couple thousand or a thousand. And they're so scrunched together through that telescope that it's hard to tell what the near prophecy is in the much further off into the future. For instance, this is why I say that. Verse 14. God promises, on the one hand, that David's son, Solomon, who's going to be the next king, he's going to reign in his place and Solomon will build the house, that is the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 14, quote, When he commits iniquity, that's why it's referring to Solomon, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. But the promise goes far beyond Solomon in this text and far beyond his sinfulness. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, unendingly. Verse 16, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so, three times we get this word forever. And you know, if you know your Old Testament history, no wonder Israel subsequently through that history found that promise, that covenant God made with David so central to them as a people. Because if God's promising to establish a kingdom forever, it means somehow God is shaping all eternity through this covenant. Now, back in this text, we know from verse 12 that God intends for David to die. Yet, verse 16 says, David, your kingdom shall be made forever before me and your throne shall be established forever. Which must mean that one of David's descendants from his line, through that one, God will establish David's throne forever. But in this text, even Solomon himself is depicted as a sinner who needs to be chastised. And the kingdom that God is saying He will bring about cannot be secured in the hands of sinners. Just flip over a couple books to the book of 1 Kings chapter 11 and look with me at Verses 9 to 13. 1 Kings 11, 9 to 13. Solomon now is king. And the Lord 
was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept My covenant and My statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This text shows that the promise to establish David's kingdom cannot be established upon rebellious and disobedient kings in the line of David. There is a conditionality to the Davidic covenant. Conditionality means there is an if. If you live before Me, I will establish My kingdom forever. There's this big English word, if to the covenant. We see it repeated over and over in the historical books like 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. 1 Kings chapter 2, for instance, David talking to Solomon, his son. He's ready to pass away. And David reminds Solomon what God spoke to him in 1 Kings 2.4. If you... There's it is. If your sons pay close attention to their way, David to walk before Me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, then you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon, King Solomon himself prays. Chapter 8, verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for Your servant David my father, what you have promised him, saying, quote, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me, David. And what Israel learned after David and then Solomon died and passed away, is that when their king and the kingdom split, and then when the king of Judah are disobedient, sinful, not walking in the way, then it went very bad in God's judgment for the people as a whole. But throughout the godly, throughout that history of Israel, the godly knew God made a covenant. God promised David something. That He would establish 
His kingdom forever. And so they knew in the midst of their continual rebellion, the godly knew. There's one coming. There's one coming who is a descendant of David who will be this son, this king, whom God will establish the kingdom forever. They waited for it. And so let's just, you look back into their history. David's in the middle of the 900s when God makes this covenant, 900s BC. Go down a couple hundred years. Now they're going to look back to that covenant and turn to Psalm 89, for instance. Trust me. Punch in David and Psalms in your Bible thing in the computer. We can read all morning. Just going to read one portion. How did they pray? What were their song books saying way down the road a couple hundred years? They knew, for one thing, that the succession of the Davidic kingship that will be established forever cannot happen with sinful, rebellious kings. But God would somehow fulfill this promise. Start with verse 29. This is how they sung. This is how they prayed. I will establish David's offspring forever. And His throne is the days of the heavens. If His children forsake My law and do not walk according to My rules, if they violate My statutes and do not keep My commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But... I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. You hear that? They knew God covenanted Himself to David. God's faithfulness was at stake to bring about what He promised. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And so, the prophets coming much after, long after David, three, four hundred years later, the prophets spoke by the Spirit of God constantly again and again of this promise is going to be fulfilled. There's a son of David who's going to come and sit upon his throne forever. For instance, Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel 37, verses 23-24. to He looks to the future salvation of the people and he speaks for God. And this is around 580 B.C. After the exile, Ezekiel prophesies, quote, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they shall be My people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have 
one shepherd. Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 to 6. Here, Jeremiah is stressing that the coming king will fulfill the condition of righteousness. Quote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, this king, will be called, quote, the Lord, our righteousness. But then it was Isaiah who by the Spirit of God saw more clearly than any other and virtually identified this descendant of David as God Himself. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us, this is almost 600 years before Christ, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of His increase, or the the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. So we see that the absolute guarantee of the covenant of David lies with God Himself coming, sitting on the throne of David in reigning. I want you to think about that. When a covenant is conditional and it is also guaranteed absolutely, that means that God is the one who has guaranteed to have the conditions fulfilled. Let me me pause and put a parenthesis in here. We'll come back to David in a minute. Many of us Christian people who come to saving faith in Christ, we just know somehow I I was ready. Whether we're raised in church or not, somehow there came that time where I was ready. And Jesus became very precious to me when I heard the Gospel. And then if we pay attention to what God is teaching us in this book called the Bible, we start to realize more and more, if we don't realize it down here, we'll realize it in heaven, 
as you walk through and you look behind you, chosen from the foundation of the world. Because we realize that for Jonah May to be saved, put your name in there, to be one of those people upon whom the blood of Christ was effectual and delivered me from God's just wrath forever was guaranteed not by me, but by God. Absolutely. There was no risk in the cross. He knew exactly whom He was saving. Yet, the Gospel goes out and it is conditional. If you believe, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe will have eternal life. The king said, come unto me. Condition, and I'll give you rest. I want the rest. You must come. Condition, yet guaranteed, means if you've come, it's because God, the guarantor, was behind your coming. Caused it. That's so how deep His mercy goes. Close parenthesis. Back to the Davidic covenant. And the prophets prophesying about it. If a covenant is conditional, one who will walk and stand in righteousness, I will establish my throne forever, yet it is absolutely guaranteed. It means that God is such a God. He is absolutely so free so in control, so sovereign, that He will guarantee and bring about the condition itself. And so, He sends the angel Gabriel to a teenage girl named Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, the angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. And He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. Listen carefully now. Be Bible people. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His Father, David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. So, the New Testament is clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise made to David 950 years before. Now, before we close, another big question here in redemptive history. David was a king of Israel. And then, of course, king of Judah. But he was king. Is this covenant and this son of David the king meant to be a king who rules only over Israel? Only over the Jews? 
Or is it like when I was a young believer? I heard often that the idea of the king in the kingdom in reigning, which talks about him reigning in Jerusalem, what that refers to is that the king, Jesus, will reign over the nation of Israel during the millennium. My answer is no, no, no. It does not just mean that at all. Jesus came and He has fulfilled the prophecy, though it's not consummated yet. That's something we'll get to in the weeks to come. And His rule and reign is relevant to every human being now in a bad way or a gloriously good way. So it's relevant for every Christian today, whether Jew or Gentile. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Let's go back to the first century. I'm turning to Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council. The bigwigs had to get together. James, who's Jesus' brother, he is the leader of the Jerusalem church in the first century. Peter's there. Paul, Silas, Barnabas, forget which. They had to go to Jerusalem. They were hardly ever there to deal with this problem. The big question was this. Jesus has come. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies. He is the Son of David. He is ruling, reigning as King. Does His kingship, His rule, His reign have any applicability to non-Jews? Or do we have to convert the non-Jew to be a Jew, thus they can be saved under King Jesus? That was the question. Do the Gentiles have to have the marks and the signs of conversion to Judaism? Ceremonial circumcision. Kosher diet. That was the question they're debating. Peter, in the text, speaks first. He flashes back to what we can see in Acts 10. I'm not going to turn there. But you remember, we're at least two years in past the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And Peter still didn't understand that a non-Jew could be saved by the blood of Christ. So God had to give him the vision of all kinds of non-kosher animals. And he said, kill and eat them. Never! Because God had to get him to go inside of a Gentile house. As a Jew, never for Peter. He got that lesson. Peter rehearsed it in front of the bigwigs, the council, and the elders of Jerusalem. And then Paul stepped up. And Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul had the theological goods of how the gospel coming from the Jewish people and from a Jewish Messiah goes to the rest of the world He had the goods and he tells about the workings of God. But then the kicker was Jesus' brother, James. He deals the final blow to Jewish exclusivism in the Gospel. Starting with verse 14, James says, Simeon, that means Peter, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So James opens up his Hebrew text. 
And he says, it's written many years before. He turns to Amos and he quotes Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the non-Jews, the Gentiles who are called by My name will come unto the house of David. That has to mean this. That when God made the covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, saying, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That God had in view a house that was much larger than merely Israel. Merely the Jews. Jesus has come and He is sitting on the throne reigning over the universe and reigning savingly over saved Jews and people from every tribe, people's tongues and nation. As Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 9 that we saw of Jesus' increase, of His increase, of His government, and of His peace, there will be no end and on the throne of David over the kingdom. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, says of King Jesus, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And so for us today, that means that our mission in our lives, if you profess Christ, is to pursue submission to the King who rules over you. Absolutely. It means pursue obedience to the King who commands. What does He command? It's filled with it here in His book. It means pursue trusting the good-heartedness of your King who promises where are they? They're all over this book. He has come in fulfillment of the prophecy that God made 3,000 years ago to David. And He has been sitting on the throne, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where He must rule and reign until all His enemies are put under His feet. That's happening now. And our mission is to tell from every tribe, peoples, tongues, and nations, not just Jews, tell people that there is a King, the greater Son of David, and you can come into His kingdom and be ruled over, which will create the greatest amount of joy 
that you could ever imagine possible. You could have this is the message of the kingdom, the gospel, if you will take your allegiance to the world and turn it to the allegiance of King David in Jesus. Tell them there is a ruler, there is a king, and he offers to everyone absolute eternal amnesty if you will turn and trust him. Application. Always, not always, sometimes a funny word. This is the only way I know how to go about it this morning. Sometimes there's kinds of applications that I think would just destroy the work of the Spirit. Here's my application Christian, soak your roots deep into redemptive. Know if you're a believer in Christ. Know from where you come. From where He came. Soak your spiritual roots deep into what God has done in history and the way He has from all eternity decided to unravel it in what you call the Bible. The Davidic covenant was made 950 years before Christ. And Jesus came and He fulfilled that covenant for you. If you're a believer, He did not come and fulfill that covenant in some massively general way if you as your own sovereign person might, if by chance, become a believer. He had you so intimately in mind when He came to fulfill and pay the price of that covenant. The very sovereignty, wisdom, and love of God that moved him to send Nathan to David that day and make that promise of that covenant is the very sovereignty and wisdom and love of God that causes eternal kindness to all those who are caught up into the fulfillment of this covenant. Just... Here's my here's the application. Listen to the prophet Isaiah as I quote. Just don't even turn. Just listen to Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came. And the gospel, you know, is all over the Old Testament. And this doesn't mean, Joe, this text is applicable to you back in 1981 when you initially came to Christ. 
This text is applicable and I am desperate to obey it every day of my life. Isaiah 55, 1-3 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to Me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The very mercy and the faithfulness that guaranteed God to fulfill the covenant He made with David is also the guarantee to fill you with true delight, true joy, as you partake and eat of Him who is life indeed. Thirst. That's my application. You say, I don't feel real thirsty for Christ today. Fear that and thirst. You know, it's Bible. It's how Peter talked to Christians. He says, as newborn babies desire. God commands desire. Thirst. I experience constantly in my life a lack of a lack and a thus sinful, not hungry, not thirsty. Well, except for the things of the world, as Isaiah says here. Why are you eating junk? That's what we're desperate for. To pray, God, help my unbelief, soften my heart, let me taste and see how good you are to me as I read your love letter to me. Come thirst. Isaiah says, come empty-handed. You have nothing to give. God does not need anything from us. That's a message to an unbeliever who is going to come to Christ and it's a message for us believers until the day we die and throughout all eternity. He is not a man that He is to be served by human hands as though He needed anything. Come. Daily come thirsty to the Son of David. The One who bore your punishment on the cross. That's now the transition. We're going to partake of Holy Communion this morning together. For everyone who is a professing believer in here and baptized, you're welcome. As we partake, 
of the bread and the juice, the body and the blood. We're commemorating the Son of David on the night before He, in which He was betrayed and the next day He would pay that glorious price of the wrath of God absorbed in His humanity for all who will be saved. But as we do and prepare our hearts the bread, the cup will be passed. Hold them. We will partake of them together. But have the words of this Jesus, this greater Son of David, ring through your heart as we sing and I close from Revelation 22, 16-17. I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify to you John, about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say to the church, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Father, You are so good. Your eternal plan to make a covenant with David is unbelievably magnificent in our eyes. To contemplate these glorious thoughts of redemption and of redemptive history can be so Holy Spirit energizing. But if You leave us apart from Your Spirit, we will have gained nothing. I ask for the continual outpouring of Your Spirit as we commune together over the bread and over the wine. Minister, pour out joy and comfort to our hearts. Bring genuine, true repentance. In Jesus' name, Amen.